John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Where are you going? Back to the restaurant. They'll fail without me. Why do you care? Because I'm a cook. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, and I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, and host uh, here in San Diego, California now, and a VO artist and excited to be getting back into this uh, animated classic from Pixar. And of course, we can't explore an animated classic without our animated expert michael vogel welcome Hello. back to the cinephiles thank you very much it's a pleasure to be back with you boys uh and, and yeah i'm glad to be the animation expert to take you on these journeys through the world of animation it is quite a journey <laughs> with you too I, I just had i just had an image of you like hosting the next like animated thing for Disney at some attraction in some Disney park, welcoming people into the wonderful world of animation. <laughs> By the way, I would, I never got to work at Disney. I didn't grow up in Orlando and I don't, but like, I always thought I would be really good at like the theme park. Like, hi there. Oh thank you God. for, thank you for coming to the animation tour here at Walt Disney studios. My name is Michael and I'm here to take you through a pleasurable journey through the world of Walt's imagination today. Like I could just go on and do it and do it. I think it's like, that's a career that I could have had. Yes, I, I 100% agree, but I think this is what I'm picturing, is there is an animated character of Michael Vogel who is always there, who is the host of your adventure through the world of animation. Well, that reminds me of, this is getting off topic a little bit, but my absolute favorite thing that, I think you can find it on YouTube, but back when the Disney Studios first opened as MGM Studios, at the beginning of the animation tour, is this the Robin they Williams had one? the Robin Williams and Walter yeah. Cronkite tour through animation where they animated Robin Williams, and it is still to this day one of my favorite pieces of Disney animation. Oh yeah, it's great. You want to know what's crazy? What? That is what I was thinking of when I thought of you <laughs> doing it. I was thinking Aww. of that Robin Williams thing. 
twinsies. <laughs> but we are not talking about the wonderful world of Michael Vogel's journey through the land of animation. We are talking about the wonderful world of Remy's journey through haute cuisine in Paris. And where we left off, Skinner and his lawyer are beginning to feel really, really threatened by this kid, Linguini. Mm. And we and he's watching through those little blinds from his office at Linguini, who is in the kitchen, starting to work. And up comes Colette, immediately interrupting him, saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, uh, I'm cutting vegetables. I'm cutting the vegetables. No, you waste energy and time. And now we get a lesson of from Colette about how best to cook in a professional kitchen. I'll make this easy to remember. Keep your station clear or I will kill you. I actually really love this scene um, just mainly because she's teaching Linguini, but she's really teaching Remy. I mean, there's this idea like we know that because it's Ratatouille and he's the main character, he is naturally an amazing cook. Like he's really, really good, but he is a rat. He's never worked professionally in a kitchen. So everything that he's learning, like there really is this nice dynamic in the movie where Colette, as is teaching Remy this whole time. Like he's becoming a better chef because of her, which I think is really kind of neat and interesting. I a hundred percent agree. And I also think it's always interesting. Really good movies know how to teach the audience. Well, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like, and it's funny. We may, uh, talked about Goodfellas in the introduction before. Um, and in a weird way, this is a similar thing of that Scorsese does so well in Goodfellas and casinos. Like this is how a casino works. Yeah. These are the things you do. This is the craftsmanship of cooking. And everything that she says from everything I've heard is exactly right. Mm -hmm. And it's also why, while I love to cook, I would never be a good chef, a good cook in a restaurant <laughs> because I don't cook clean. Like I, like I'm a mess mm -hmm. and like all of that, keep your station clean, you know, work efficiently, keep your elbows in, you know, all that stuff. I'm not good at it. And it's super <laughs> important. Yeah. Especially um, when you're, especially if you're a rat. Especially if you're a rat. <laughs> Ugh, your sleeves look like you threw up on them. Keep your hands and arms in, close to the body, like this. See? Always return to this position. Cook smooth, fast, sharp utensils, hard metal. Keep your arms in. You will minimize cuts and burns and keep your sleeves clean. Mark of a chef. Messy apron, clean sleeves. And as she's giving him instructions, she says that she studied Gusto, and the secret to Gusto is that their every dish contains something unexpected. And Linguini writes down, Always do something unexpected. No, follow the recipe. But you just said. No, 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 no. It was his job to be unexpected. It is our job to follow, follow the recipe. This is a key contradiction between the creative chef like Gusto and like Remy. And the person who has to execute it over and over again, and that's mm. like Colette. And then we go right from sort of talking about the craft of cooking to talking about the crew, who the cooks who are actually in that kitchen, and they are a great bunch of characters. Worst has done time. What for? No one know for sure. He changes the story every time you ask him. I defrauded a major corporation. I robbed the second largest bank in France using only a ballpoint pen. I created a hole in the ozone of Ravignon. I killed a man with this thumb. This was also, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, when they were researching the movie and they went to French Laundry, I mean, this is one of the discoveries they made that literally made it from their discovery right into the movie, which is this mm -hmm. concept that the people working 
in the back of a kitchen at a fancy restaurant are not all fancy people. Like they are this mm. ragtag group of pirates, which I think is the way the people at the French Laundry kind of described it to the Pixar team. And then the Pixar team put that directly into the movie that these guys all have these weird pasts and these kind of shady dealings. And like they all came to the kitchen in a different way, which is kind of really fun. Yeah. Um, I also think there is another source and I am 98% certain that they read this book and that is Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Mm, yeah. Because have either of you ever read it? You gave it to me. Yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did you read it? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, Because that whole idea of yeah. that cooks are pirates and rebels and criminals and have all the, that's what Kitchen Confidential is. Mm -hmm. And it was such an influential book that not only was it influential um, for people reading it, learning about kitchens, but it was also influential in kitchens because people felt like, hey, this guy's telling our story. Mm. Although the one thing I know Bourdain later on really regretted is that it also had this sort of macho, everyone insulting people, like being cruel to the women in mm -hmm. who are chefs and just this sort of bro -y sort of culture. And he really, really regretted that his book made that go further but there's no question in my mind that they that the people writing this movie had read that book it had, they have to yeah mm -hmm. and then we get to the end of the scene and i love how linguini thanks colette and i love love her response thank you by the way for all the advice about cooking thank you too for for what for taking it she has really gone out of her way out of everybody in the kitchen to make Linguini feel welcome. And, mm -hmm. you know, and this is, and as we talked about, and we talked about on the last episode, like, you know, Colette is just this amazing character that not only represents the way it is for a woman to be in the kitchen, but in a lot of ways represented what it was like to be a woman animator at Pixar. And so to have Linguini have this moment with her, uh, I feel like, I feel like that moment probably meant a lot to a lot of the women working on the film, just as it did to a lot of women watching it. Yeah. Well, and, and the truth is, well, Colette is in a sexist environment. There's not a hint of sexism in Linguini. He admires her mm -hmm. more than anyone probably he's ever met, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, e even more than Remy. It's, and it's an interesting thing. Like Remy is his friend who is a genius, but Colette is the woman, A, the woman that he's in love with and B, the ultimate thing that Linguini is not, which is yeah. disciplined, hardworking, controlled, you know, has all of her stuff together. Mm -hmm. Well, because she has to, right? That's yeah, why exactly. she's the one to guide him. That's the one she's the one because of the, you know, the fact that she's a woman in the kitchen. Like a, like a lot of women listening to us know it. You have to work twice as hard in a male-dominated environment in order to be considered somewhat uh, respectable by them. It's, mm -hmm. it's unfortunate, but it's true. Or it was true. Maybe it's gotten better now. I don't know. Um, Linguini is outside, kneeling down, talking to Remy, and Skinner drives by, sees Linguini with a rat, backs up, looks, no rat, and Linguini says, I just dropped my keys. It is, it's so funny to me, and this is what I love about animation, really good animation is, this is right out of like a classic Looney Tune. Like this whole Skinner totally. bit that we keep coming back to, which the... I drive past, I see the rat, I pull back, rat is all of a sudden magically gone and it's something else. Like, you know, in a, in a movie that kind of is credited by, by looking so real and everything we've been talking about, it's so real, it has mm -hmm. these great emotional moments, but you still make the time to have this 1000% 
super cartoony beat. Like the, in Skinner's reaction, his confusion. I mean, he might as well be Elmer Fudd or Yosemite Sam in these moments, and it's awesome. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't have to be realistic. I mean, like what I love about Pixar in particular is they spend so much effort making everything really real in a way, you know, making sure that they understand how a kitchen works, getting all the surfaces right and the light right and the textures right and all of that stuff correct. And then they can do something completely silly like the rat just disappears into thin air <laughs> and we totally accept it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think like when, it, when you talk about Pixar's realism, um, you know, Johnny and I have been talking about, we've been doing on the Geek Buddies, we've been doing oh, yeah. these Bad Batch reviews and we talk every mm. week about how amazing and realistic the Bad Batch is. But I think the best if, if animation always looked completely 100% realistic, I don't think it would grab our imaginations the way it does. I think what mm. really good animators do, and I think Pixar does this throughout, and we've talked about this with the way that they make France look and everything else is, they go to great lengths to research everything. They went to France, they took photos, they do everything so they know what it really looks like. And they could make it look 100% real. They could make these moments feel 100% realistic. But then they add the magic element to it, which is, this isn't what you see. This is what you think you see. This is what your emotions right. are seeing. And that's what we're going to make this stuff look like. That's what we're going to make this stuff feel like. And that extra bit makes you love the animated version of France even more than France. And to your point, it's what allows you to have these super cartoony moments that don't need to be realistic because in a real looking movie, they probably wouldn't fit as much. But in this hyper real mm -hmm. environment, it's totally acceptable. Well, and I think there's, I don't know, I say this in the silliest way, but if you're going to make something exactly realistic and humans look exactly like humans in a completely acceptable environment, why not just shoot it? Why not mm, get humans? Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's a lot cheaper to actually go to a location and film the location than to build it all in animation and make it look perfect. And the one that you went to shoot, well, that no one's going to go. I don't that uh, there's no uncanny valley when <laughs> right. you shot real people, you know? Um, yeah. The whole point of doing animation is that you're doing something that you can't do, create a world that you can't create. It's the dining room and the waiter is asking for an order and the diners want something new. So what is that? What is new? You. And I love, we haven't talked very much about the waiter, but I love all of his bits. And that would be John Ratzenberger. That are everyone's favorite oh. Pixar. Yeah. You, get, you can't have a Pixar movie without John Ratzenberger in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. How did I? How did I not know that was him? Yeah. Now that you say it, of course it is. But I didn't. Yeah. Ah, I didn't pick it up. Um, what a post Cliff Clavin career he's had. <laughs> I mean, right? Really, and I love him running into the kitchen completely panicked. And this is great comedy dialogue. So what is that? What is new? You? <laughs> what, like, what, well, what did you tell them? I told them I would ask. What are you blathering about? Customers are asking. What is new? What should I tell them? What did you tell them? I told them I would ask. I told them I would ask. <laughs> I was asking for something new. What did you tell them? I told them I would ask. <laughs> by the way, the guy asking for something new is voiced by Thomas Keller, the sh the, the chef of the French Laundry that mm. they went to uh, to research for the film. And what I heard was that when they dubbed this into other languages, they always made sure to get a great chef from that country to play this part. That's awesome. I think that is a totally nice little thing to do. <laughs> this is simple. Just pull out an old gusto recipe, something we haven't made in a while. And they know about the old stuff. They like linguine soup. <laughs> And now this is when Skinner comes up with the trap, which is 
oh, they want something from Linguini. Let's have Linguini make the most horrible sounding recipe that <laughs> Chef Gusto ever made. Sweet bread cooked in a seaweed salt crust with cuttlefish tentacle, dog rose puree, gooey duck egg, dried white fungus, and chilvy licorice sauce. I mean, literally... <laughs> I, you know what I, I really love is that they probably sat in a room workshopping the worst exactly. possible recipe they could come up with. And it's like, what words just sound horrible together? And they really did nail it. <laughs> it, it sounds, I mean, a lot of weird stuff. That sounds awful. <laughs> just <laughs> totally awful. To the point where I don't understand how, how Remy could possibly save this dish. But that is what we see. And the way that this sequence is animated as Linguini spirals and flails around trying to make this dish controlled by Remy is amazing. Yeah, and it really – and you're right. I mean this really does get to that point that we talked about in the, in the previous episode, just that the difference between Colette and Remy, that Colette's entire existence is I want to execute – what a great chef created. And so for her, she's completely like, we're going to do this. And Linguini is a, because he's listening to her and B because he's kind of sweet on her a little bit really is like, let's do the Colette thing and watching the back and forth of his body as Remy is refusing to do it because he is the great chef. He knows this is bad. He doesn't care what Gusto put on it. Like he's trusting his gut and just watching this battle between them, play out as Linguini has no control over his body but it's like what I his mouth is saying I'm agreeing with you as his body is just p- literally pushing <laughs> her away and it's amazing what are you doing you're supposed to be preparing the gusto recipe and this is this is the recipe the recipe doesn't call for white truffle oil and my understanding is the way they animated it is very different from the way most things are animated which is that Normally, and, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you pretty much worked out your cuts through the storyboard and animatic process. So mm-hmm. you're only animating the piece that you really need. Is that kind of correct? I think you mean well, – well, ex- explain that again. Well, okay. So if I'm going to film a scene yeah. I, and, and it's the three of us talking, I'm going to shoot a master and I'm going to shoot the whole scene. And then I'm going to shoot mm. a close-up of you and shoot the whole scene and then John and then me so that I have at least yes. four complete versions of the scene. Yes. You, How is yes, that different in animation? In animation, traditionally, you don't. You do work out all of your cuts at the storyboarding phase. Uh, so you make every cut. You know when you're going in for a close-up. You know when you're going to a two-shot. You know when you're going to the wide shot. Uh, you know when you have some uh, complicated panning shot. Like You right. work this all out on, just because like it's pencil mileage. So you get all that done there so that you're not actually animating multiple angles and multiple scenes that being said sometimes directors do that like sometimes they do do the animation equivalent of coverage so that they can cut around it and have at least a little bit of options well and that's my understanding of what they did here is Uh that they all of this linguini movement they did from the beginning of the sequence to the end as like a oneer, and they did it five times Mm -hmm. and then rather than going okay this is how we storyboarded this is this is how we'll cut it is they just handed that footage to an editor and had them edit it in the traditional way, cutting yeah. between these different takes. Yeah. And it gives it a completely different sort of feel. And then the thing that I love even more is how they did the voiceover, mm. which is they showed the animatic to the actor and just said, here, figure it out, figure out what you're saying. And what I love about that choice is that it's like what's happening to Linguini. He doesn't literally doesn't know what his body is going to do, and now he is improvising how to talk about it. Need to borrow this real quick. Uh, let's see over here. I'll be right 
Yeah, because when you listen to the scene, you know, if they had given Linguini actual dialogue like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm trying to control myself, like, it would have been funny, but it wouldn't have really sounded authentic. And what you end up getting, which is this, oh, I, who, he, who, okay, no, I, it's it's him just riffing because he doesn't know what's going to come next. And that improvisation level really does make it good. And a quick note about what they did, because you're right, they did do that in the sequence, a lot Mm. easier to do in CG than it is in 2D. Mm, yeah, in course. 2D, you would literally have to repaint the background from every angle. You would have to reanimate. And with CG, since you basically build all the sets in a computer, you have all the characters designed and rigged in a computer, and you have a camera in the computer. Mm-hmm. You're literally moving the camera from one position to another position and letting the scene play out. So not that it's easy, and it's still not something that everybody does in animation production, but in the world of CG, it is easier to sort of... Uh, quote unquote, reset the camera and shoot again uh, than it is in 2D hand-drawn animation. Can you explain a little bit more about that? What do you mean when you say that you build the set? Like, what is that? What What is that? What are they doing? So if you picture like, let, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, okay, like, let's talk about like Ariel's Grotto. We all know Ariel's Grotto. Right. It's a giant mm-hmm. grotto. It's got a bunch of human things in it. Um, when you watch Little Mermaid, anytime that you see a different angle of that grotto, when you're looking over Ariel's shoulder and you see the one side of the grotto or the other side of the grotto, or you look up and you see the little hole in the top where she can see Prince Eric's boat fly over, every single one of those is a, is a different painting. And so t- kind of to your point, Steve, when, you an- when you're doing the animatic, you figure out what all your angles are and you go to the background department and you say, here's all the, sh- here's all the shots. And they paint every single one of those angles. And then the animator animates the character on top of those. Um, if you were doing Ariel's Grotto in CG, you build the whole grotto. You build a hmm. giant 3D uh, grotto that can spin around and you put all the textures on it and you do everything. And then you take your CG Ariel who's rigged. And what rigged means is that you've basically built all of the controls like a, like a marionette or a robot. So that on the computer, you can move her arm up, move her arm down, make her blink, make her fins move. Um, And you take this rigged aerial and you put her in the grotto. And then you literally do have the equivalent of a camera in the computer. And you can put the camera wherever you want it the same way that a director would on a live action set. And so you move the camera, you're like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to move in for a close up, and then she's going to grab the fork and she's going to do this thing. And the camera's going to spin around her. And you're literally moving the camera in the computer the way you would on a live action set, as opposed to having to repaint every angle, if that makes sense. Mm. It totally does. And it's so fascinating to me because um, of the other thing I remember hearing about uh, Roger Rabbit, another movie I would love to do with you at some point, Michael. I will um, do Roger but- Rabbit whenever you guys want to. Okay. But but them trying to create some of the three dimensionality and the shadows on the characters and doing it with hand drawn animation and how difficult that was. Whereas in this, once you build it all, if you want to move a light or change something a little bit, then then you've already have the model. And I love too that that I learned when I was trying to do very very basic special effects in some films is that just changing the angle of a camera a little bit changes entirely the shape of the thing that you're shooting. Yeah. Because the angle has changed. And in CG, in hand drawn, I'm sorry, in, in hand drawn, well, that means the artist has to figure that out for how the camera is moved. Whereas in CG, the computer knows what's happening. Yeah. That, that's just amazing to me. Yeah, it's fun. I love the differences between the different mediums of animation is something that I always get obsessed with because having worked on 
traditional 2D animated shows, CG animated shows, flash animated shows, harmony, like all the different kind of mediums that you can use, um, like different challenges for each one, things that are really difficult to do and things that are really easy. And, you know, like there's, there's always a trade off. And then, and then if you're Pixar, you just make everything look absolutely spectacular because you're Pixar. (laughs) Right. Of course. (laughs) So there's a whole bunch of things in addition to the great animation that's happening in this sequence. One is Obviously, Linguini's moving in a really weird way. The second is slowly Colette starts to figure out that he's not exactly doing the recipe as it's written on the card. You are improvising? This is no time to experiment. They got some waiting. And she s- saw him as an ally, and she's starting to see him as someone shit maybe she can't trust. And I love, you're right, I should listen to you. <laughs> Talking, of course, to Remy, <laughs> saying they should do it. And then I love even that Remy makes him slap himself. Stop that! Stop what? Wicking me out! <laughs> <laughs> I also do love, I mean, one of the things that they they do a really good job with Remy is that he's so likable, despite the fact that, like, he's very confident. Like, he's he, mm-hmm. he never comes across as arrogant. Totally. He never comes across as arrogant, but there's something lovely about this character who, despite the other issues he has in the movie, his ability in a kitchen is not one of them. Like, he has... Mm-hmm no doubts in the sequence that he is right about what to do with this recipe. And we, as the audience know that he's right. It's like Steve Morris when he was 19, just <laughs> absolutely convinced everything I did was right. <laughs> oh, or like Mike Vogel. To this morning. This yeah. morning. <laughs> yeah. As Michael said, it's not, it's not cocky. It doesn't throw you off. He's almost, it's almost like breathing to him. It just seems yeah. so, logical so natural the the way it comes to him that doesn't come off as arrogant or cocky or whoever whatever it's it just makes so much sense that he's amazed other people don't see it right i mean i i think i mentioned in the first part i I think he's on the spectrum he's on the spectrum in a way because to him it is like so logical what he's doing and he doesn't mind crossing the lines of what would be normal way to approach how to do something um, because he knows in the end, it's about the dish being as perfect as possible. It isn't about stroking the ego of the other people that are around him. It's about in service of the dish. And that's the focus. That's not, did I hurt your feelings? Well, you know, what's interesting. And I think, I don't know that I fully agree on the spectrum part, although I've never thought of it that way. And I think that's interesting, but I, I think what you, what you did say that I hadn't thought of in this way is that, What's great about Remy is it's all about the process and not about ego. And I think a lot of times when you have a character that is really good at something or people in real life who are good at something, maybe Mm. they believe their own hype too much or they need to continue Mm -hmm. to prove themselves or them doing the creative thing is about proving how much better they are than everybody else. And Remy is pure creation. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not interested. He's not competing with anybody else. He's competing with himself. He's just interested in making it as good as he can. And that's what's happening in this moment. The first thing that occurs to me listening to what you guys are saying is you, I think I'm sure you both have had this. I know you both have had this moment where creatively you're just in the zone Mm. where it's just, it's like really clicking. Mm -hmm. Remy is permanently in the zone when he's cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he totally unsure maybe about a whole bunch of other stuff in life, but the moments in the kitchen, he is 100% there knows exactly what he's doing. And in a weird way, he is like the, we all have this dream that if only I'm given the shot, I know I could deliver, mm-hmm. but we're never given the shot. And Remy is the ultimate fantasy of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Despite all the odds, despite everything we could think about him and where he comes from and the fact that he's a rat. In fact, you give him the shot and he can do it. And in a weird way, there's a whole bunch of movies, I think, that I adore 
that as I grow older go, oh, that message actually isn't always that healthy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the, the message of this stuff is really hard. You need to really work hard and practice your craft is actually as a teacher, the message I would rather see my students when don't, you don't have to practice anything. You just get your shot. You're going to nail it. Don't worry. You know? <laughs> but but what is interesting is this movie has a little bit of both because in this scene, as much as Remy is right about the recipe, in the previous scene we were talking about, Colette is right about how to work in a kitchen. Like yes. Remy is still mm. learning even though he does have this natural talent. At the end of the scene, she realizes that she forgot the most important part, the anchovy licorice sauce. <laughs> <laughs> That is a perfectly heinous combination. (laughs) She runs off to get it and she comes back and totally against his will, Linguini blocks her. And the way the way it's animated of him, she says, don't you dare. And he says, I'm not. I'm not. And his hand (laughs) out of control dumps a different sauce on it right as the waiter grabs it and takes it out. It's perfectly done. Is uh, Linguini's dish done yet? Yeah. He's as bad as we remember. Just went out. Did you... Taste? Yeah, of course. Before he changed it. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) And, of course, everybody loves it. They love it! Sir Dino's already asking about it. About Linguini! I have seven more orders! That's wonderful. At the end of the night, we have a toast to Linguini. Everyone is happy. Um, There's light shining on Linguini, which illuminates uh, the rat in the toque. And by the way, I think one of the brilliant choices, I think uh, I think this is a Brad Bird choice, was to actually have him in this sort of transparent, you know, somewhat see through toque, which doesn't make any sense. But that allows Remy to see everything that's going on and allows us to see Remy. And in this moment, it allows Skinner to see Remy. Mm. Um, and then a moment later, when Linguini's entering the kitchen, Skinner is perched, squatting, waiting for him to walk through and grabs the toke off his head and no rat. <laughs> and then the animation on Skinner when he crawls down because he's so little. So whenever you put him on something really <laughs> tall, watching him sort of like work his way down is just hilarious. <laughs> and he calls Linguini into his office for a friendly chat. And we watch as Colette watches him go. I, I, I think I said in the last episode, I really do think Colette's my favorite character and the pain of this guy came along. He's got talent. Colette is actually for Colette being extremely nice to him, yeah. helps him, trains him, shows him the ropes. And then in making this last recipe, she, he totally betrays her, essentially succeeds and now is surpassing her. Yeah. It's just really, really painful. First thing, your success, eh, Linguini? And Remy's also getting a chance to celebrate. He's sitting there eating some grapes and cheese and bread. And there he sees something in the shadows, and it is Emile. They found each other again. Remy! Emile? Um, and Emile is still eating garbage. What? No. You're in Paris now, baby. My town. <laughs> <laughs> Remy runs to the walk-in. To get uh, Emil some good food, and Remy, you are stealing. I don't. I don't know why the stealing thing sort of. It's it's fine, and I understand why it's in the movie. But for some reason, I just feel like it wasn't necessary. And it's like the idea because what you're doing in this weird way is saying that rats living just their normal life to survive are actually all a bunch of criminals. They're all immoral, and I and and I don't think that they are. Well, that's what that's what is in Remy's head. He's stealing his bad. I, I think what Gusteau is standing for is that Remy can be a cut above these rats, so therefore he doesn't have to steal because he understands 
the um, how can I say this? The importance of food, how to put food together. He has a responsibility to act a certain way because hmm. he has this talent, as opposed to the rats who don't. You, they don't give a shit if you call them thieves or criminals or whatever. They're they're living their lives. They probably laugh at you if you call them thieves. But Remy's affected by it because remember, this is Remy's voice telling him this. Remy's right. trying to his inner voice is trying to tell him yes. to be better. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I never once thought it was an indictment on the rats. I mean, I get your point of view. I just don't no, I, I, see I it think the same I'm being way. totally weird about it. I think this is a very bizarre point <laughs> well, I'm making. I do, I do think it's uh, – I, I don't know if the stealing thing fully makes sense. Like you get that that's what a rat does. I, I get right. that. It's a, that's a it's fair. A, yeah. I think what, what the, big, the, bigger, the bigger reason that it's in the movie just for a very specific point is that Linguini is the one that tells Remy not to steal. And yeah. then, therefore, mm. when when Linguini catches Remy stealing for all the other rats, it is a betrayal. And that, like, you need at that point in the movie for Linguini to feel betrayed by Remy. And so there needed to be a thing that, like, this is what I told you and you didn't do it. And so I think it's yeah. there for a very specific sort of structural reason. But I don't disagree with you that of all the great things in this movie, the whole, like, don't don't steal, you're a rat. I'm kind of, particularly early on. At the beginning of the movie, when he's hungry, it's like, bitch, get, go go take a grape. You're hungry. No one's gonna miss that grape. Well, well, actually, you just nailed it, and now I understand what what rubbed me the wrong way, and I mm. even know what the fix is. Is the problem is is that the idea of being a thief is introduced long before we meet Linguini. Is that it's in sort of normal rat life, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be a thief, and it's like, well, how else are rats gonna eat? <laughs> you know, like if they have to get food from somewhere, right, right. If if it had actually been. Remy in the walk-in going to eat some food and Linguini going, hey, little chef, I'm just, I'm really nervous about my job. And if they find out food is, I'll make sure you get food, but please just don't take any or I'm going to lose my job. Mm. Like then the stealing thing is tied into a character relationship thing. And then it, it and I, because it is exactly what you just said. It is the betrayal of uh, Linguini that they're setting up for later mm. in the movie. Mm. Yeah, that actually, that actually solves the problem for me. Mm. Um, You're welcome. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> well, to be clear, we solved it together. I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just giving you a welcome for my part in it. <laughs> I, and still, I appreciate it. I still disagree with both of you. Let's keep going. <laughs> um, and while uh, Remy is getting a meal, some food, <laughs> Linguini is drunk. Oh my God, um, super drunk. <laughs> More wine? I, I shouldn't, but okay. I love Skinner desperately trying to lead the discussion towards rats. Do you like animals? <laughs> what? Animals? What kind? <laughs> oh, the usual dogs, cats, horses, guinea pigs, rats. And Liguidi, despite being so drunk, he's pretty good about not actually giving anything away. And now Remy teach, tries to teach Emil about food. Uh, see? Not really. Creamy, salty, sweet, and oaky nuttiness. You detect that? Oh, I'm detecting nuttiness. Close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I also love, uh, and I think Brad Bird has, has I, thought, I think I saw Brad Bird talking about this, but that, like, Remy does almost get a meal there. Like, like he gives a meal the one thing. So like, that tastes good. Here's the other thing that tastes good. And he's starting to get it. But then Remy sort of, like, oversells. Like, he, mm. he gets so excited that he, like, sort of goes a little bit too far. And Emil's like, no, 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 no. This is too much. This is too much. I don't get it. I, I lost it. <laughs> 
Well, and at that moment, he realizes we haven't told dad that you're alive. So they go <laughs> off to to find dad and we're back with even drunker Linguini. Hey, why do they call it that? Blot. Ratatouille. It's like a stew, right? Why do they call it that? If you're going to name a food, you should give it a name that sounds delicious. Ratatouille doesn't sound delicious. It sounds like rat. And patootie. <laughs> I just want to bring this up one time, which is that this is a movie that takes place in Paris. Mm. Uh, the title of the movie is Ratatouille. The reason it's titled Ratatouille is obviously because it's about a rat. That pun doesn't work in French because Ratatouille and the word for a rat don't sound anything like each other. Mm. And so what when Linguini's talking about rat and patootie well that doesn't work in french either so this does come up a lot uh i got in a big argument about this on the show that i'm currently working on because when you do an animated show uh and you write it in english and it's going to go out to an english audience but it is going to get translated like the show that i'm currently working on is going to be in france and brazil and other places and so we're going through all of these uh english language all these translation processes and a lot of times when you write a really fun pun or play on words right you get that exact pushback you're like well that's not going to make sense in france or that's not going to make sense in germany and it is funny how you it it there's a if it's going to harm the understanding of the story and we have to change it we will but if it's gonna be kind of just a little bit weird we're gonna keep it because the pun is really good um Mm -hmm. and like the pun of ratatouille and rat is so good that you're like yeah we're gonna keep that uh but but yeah it's it's something that comes up a lot more often than you think when you're doing all these translations well, and we see the other side of it when we watch a movie that's subtitled and there'll be some phrase in it. That you're like, I don't What does that mean? And yeah, what it is, yeah. is they're doing a direct translation of some idiom from a different language that we don't have any translation for. Or yep. even worse with Batman Ninja, they did an English translation, uh, uh, the subtitles of the English translation. They did not <laughs> subtitle the Japanese translation uh, or the Japanese audio. They subtitled the English audio. So you could watch the Japanese audio. But the subs you get are not correlative to what the Japanese audio is actually saying. So oh, it's wow. the, it was one of the most frustrating things about Batman Ninja because unless I spoke Japanese, I wouldn't be able to really understand what the story is trying to tell you. And the English interpretation apparently doesn't do it justice. So such well, and, and on big budget <laughs> things, they have this is taken really seriously and they have really, really good people working on it. And on low budget things or catalog things or older things, they yeah. don't. Yeah, <laughs> they're just let's just get it out. Yep. And Skinner realizes he's not getting anything out of Linguini, and he he stops giving him wine and tells drunk Linguini to clean the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, huge celebration with the rats because Remy is back. Dad even has a band playing for him. He's so excited to see him again. And we're right back into this conflict. Visit? I will. I promise. Often. Well, you're not staying? No. I, I really do like that, uh, you know, that they... I was talking about Little Mermaid earlier, like, you know, like it's easy to make one side of the equation in a story like this, the bad ones or the wrong ones. Uh, And it would have been really easy to make Remy's dad sort of the heavy who was wrong about what he was saying, but really very different perspective from Remy and has his own arc on coming to an understanding, but nothing he says is wrong here. And it's funny, we're, we're back into this classic story of I'm an artist with a dream and my family doesn't understand me. And we talked about how many movies going back to the jazz singer that this kind of story is. And someone on Twitter pointed out that, in fact, this is the second time Brad Bird has done this story hmm. because he also directed the Simpsons episode, which was like father, like clown, which is the Krusty the Clown oh, origin story where his dad is a rabbi. 
<laughs> someone's, working, was, someone's working out some stuff, I think. Yeah, apparently. Well, and, and that is that is in such the golden age of The Simpsons. That is yeah. just what it's so good. Uh, and not surprising that a director like Brad Bird is on the show. You didn't think I was going to stay forever, did you? I mean, eventually a bird's got to leave the nest. We're not birds. We're rats. We don't leave our nests. We make them bigger. Well, maybe I'm a different kind of rat. Maybe you're not a rat at all. Maybe that's a good thing. Hey, the band's really on tonight, huh? Rats. And as Remy's defending humans, finally, Dad says, look, I want to show you something. And they come out of the sewer, and they walk through the streets up to a window that is literally filled with dead rats. (laughs) <laughs> now, I haven't spent that much time in Paris, but I have never seen the dead rat store. <laughs> Why would a store have dead rats in your uh, window? I don't know. It, when you really stop to think about it, you're like, well, this is a disgusting store. <laughs> but, a, yeah. but what I also do love about this, and this is like one of those things that when people talk about how great Pixar is, it's because of moments like this, because they, they take a ridiculous idea, like a rat wanting to cook and being in a kitchen. And... To make the story work, they don't shy away from the reality. Like, they don't shy away from the fact that, like, in real life, we hate rats. In real life, Mm. if we see a rat in our house, we're calling the exterminator to kill the rats. Like, we do not like them. And so even though this is a lovely movie about this young guy and his rat and their friendship and everything else, like, they don't sugarcoat the reality of it. In fact, they have a character take someone out and be like, this is what our reality is. And this is what makes the the character of his dad so great, which is the idea that like, he's trying to protect Remy from this. And this Mm. is real. Like this is legitimate. And so I just love when Pixar does stuff like this because other studios would just be like, Oh, let's, let's, uh, everybody likes rats. Okay. Let's just (laughs) pretend everybody likes rats. Okay. You just gave me a full epiphany or or what I should say is that, you just explained something to me about Pixar that I never really understood before, which is that because most times the movie will shy away from the difficult. Like, I don't know how to deal with that exactly. It's too complicated. It's too dark. Yeah. Let's just avoid the topic. Mm-hmm. And what Pixar does over and over and over again, because you think about Toy Story. Toy Story does this all the time, which it has this ridiculous idea that toys are alive and sentient and can talk. And then it shows this is what happens to toys. Mm. Yeah. You know, this is how they are treated. This is how they are lost. This is how they are forgotten. This is how they are destroyed. And that Pixar manages to walk this balance beam of doing a movie that's totally appropriate for kids and yet also not shying away from the dark issues that it brings up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I Um, mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it's the reality. It's it's the reason that I will always stand um, Monsters University, no matter what anybody says to me, um, because <laughs> Monsters University is the craziest concept. Every every movie for kids in the world teaches you if you work hard enough, you can succeed at what you dream at what your dreams are. And Monsters University is the only family film that I can think of that says you can work as hard as you want at the thing mm. that you dream about, and you still might not be good enough. And yep. that's what this movie is about. And the fact that that's the, what the story they chose to tell will make me love Monsters University forever. But that's for our Monsters <laughs> University episode. It's so funny contrasting that with what I was saying about Remy before, which is he's the person who just is a genius. It doesn't have to work at all. Mm. You right. know? So the fact that Monsters University is putting forth a different kind of message is great. You know, yeah. like well, this, because these issues. Yeah. 
both of those people exist in the world. There are yep, people yep. that are just naturally gifted at one thing or another thing. And there's other people that want to be something real. They want to be a singer. They want to be an artist. They want to be a doctor. They want to be whatever they are. And it's just not in the cards for them. And yeah. I think that the fact that both of those stories exist within the pantheon of Pixar stories is really interesting to me. Well, and it's also why dad is perfectly reasonable in this moment to say, you're a rat. You can't be that thing mm. that you want to be. You have to accept reality as it is. And there's a long pause. And then Remy says, no. What? No. Dad, I don't believe it. You're telling me that the future is, can only be more of this? This is the way things are. You can't change nature. And Remy's response is just great. Change is nature, Dad. The part that we can influence. And Dad says, where are you going? With luck. Forward. I love it. What do you think happens to... I always wondered this when I watched those movies. Like, what happened to that young dad? What happened to that guy when he was young? What happened to that dad or that mom when they were young? What made them turn into scared people for their kids what made them like oh, no no you can only do this you got to stay here when they certainly had dreams they certainly had moments when they wanted to kind of break out of the pattern so why wouldn't you celebrate having a child who wants to kind of break this break the schneid or break the the pattern break the what do you call it break the wheel i guess in well, lack of a better term i always I find mean, that I, to be fascinating you know? i think that's i mean speaking of nature i think that's the nature mm. of the world and i think ratatouille really that's what this movie is about is that it's not that dad is wrong and it's not no. that dad is being unreasonable. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's an adult and adults have seen enough of the world to go statistically, this is real. Kids right. are great because kids yeah. don't think statistically. Kids think yeah. I can be the one in a million. I can make, I'm, I'm special. I can be one in a million. I can make my dreams come true. It's right. not until you become an older adult where maybe some of your dreams didn't come true. Maybe you had mm-hmm. to settle. Maybe you had to choose one dream over another dream. But for whatever reason, right. you end up in a position where you say, okay, well, life doesn't really work out. And so then when your kid comes along and says, I can do anything, you're like, I love you. <laughs> I'm trying to build you up. I'm, I, I don't want you to get disappointed. So I'm trying to tell you, look yeah. at these rats in the window. <laughs> these rats in the window most likely you if you keep going down this road and Remy represents the kid that's like I'm going to change the world and it's why kids are always the ones like that's why kid that's why the children are our future because they're the mm-hmm. ones that are uh, blindly optimistic enough to do it it's why I try and remain to be, it's, it's why I'm going to try and remain a kid as long as I possibly can even though I'm <laughs> far past that age so I have several thoughts the first thought I have is that this idea of follow your dream and come up with who you are going to be in life that is a really recent invention. Like that's maybe in the last 150 years is that up to that point, if your dad Mm. was a farmer, you were a farmer. That's it. Mm -hmm. Nobody, there were no dreams like you. Oh, I'm going to be a blacksmith. I'm going to be, you know, that's just what, because that's all there was. What are you talking about? Shakespeare left a small fucking town to go be one of the greatest artists in the world. And I bet a million people told him you're not going to make it in London. Sure. I bet a million. So I, I think this idea, I think we've had dreams since we were cavemen. Of doing I, something more than what we've been well, handed. 
Uh, well, I think. So I don't, I don't mean to inter- I'm sorry. I don't, I'm just saying, like, that seems odd no. to me. I think you make. Invention. I think you make a fantastic point, yeah. and I think certainly there are people like Shakespeare that totally, uh, you know, it's the exception that proves the rule. An exception, uh, a, a expression I absolutely hate, but <laughs> certainly that is an exception. You're totally right. But I will say, for most people, the the idea that you were going to go off and follow your dreams was super super rare. Right, like right. that. You know, you're a caveman and you're out, which is you know hundreds of thousands of years of human existence. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you the guys went out and they hunted and the women gathered and that is what you did. And the next generation did the same damn thing. And that is true for <laughs> yeah. most of human history. I'm sure know? there was a cave painting guy that was like, but I want Absolutely. to stay here and do painting. Totally. I'm I sure there was. There I think, yeah, I but think, I hear I what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. It's more the matter of the desire may have been there there since the right. dawn of man but the ability to do so uh was is has only been recently over the last few hundred and I, years yeah. and i think yeah. what's more recent is that it's become part of what we want to teach yeah. kids yes that's what I was about to say. there's absolutely there have been people who were like fuck it i'm gonna go paint fuck it i'm gonna yeah. go be a star on the stage even though you know at a point in time when people who were in theater were looked at as like basically little more than like whores, you know I mean? Like there was definitely people that always broke the rules to go do the thing they were passionate about. I think the thing that changed is in the past 150 years, um, it has become much more of a, you teach your children. Yeah. That's a great point. Actually, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. That's I totally a hundred percent agree. And the thing too, that just to answer John, your Mm -hmm. question is we, for me at least, We've been through some shit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I went out and followed my dreams and it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And I worked really hard and it was hard. And so, like, I, I, when, when Jax was first born, people go, Oh, so, and people go, Man, your kid is so cute. Are you going to put him on commercials? Like, do you want him to be an actor? And I'm like, <laughs> No. <laughs> you know, it's like if Jax comes to me and says, Dad, I want to be an actor, I will totally support him. Right. But I will also tell him, This is a really, really, really difficult choice. And Almost everyone I know who's chosen it has really, really struggled. Mm-hmm. And it is not what you think it might be. Not right. that it's not possible to become a star. It is possible. Mm-hmm. But it's really unlikely. And it's really, really hard. And even stars are not necessarily very happy. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and Jax has come to me because he, like, basically all children that I know wants to be a YouTuber. <laughs> um, that is his goal. And it's so, so funny. Like, I was talking to him. This is, like, last week, John. So and I said, well, you know, John's a YouTuber. I mean, that's his, that's his career. And he's like wait, he's like a YouTuber? And I went, yeah. And he's like, and yeah. Jax's next question was, how many millions of followers? Yeah, do you have? exactly. Yeah. I'm way, <laughs> I'm way like, low down on the rub, but I make a living. So there's nothing wrong. I was like, I was like, John is working his butt off and he's making his living, but it's really, really, I've been telling Jax that being a YouTuber is really hard literally for years. And Jax is, and we were talking about school because he's today, by the way, his first day of school. Oh. And so he's back starting fifth grade and he's going like, I don't, we're talking about reading and math and things. He's like, well, I don't really need those things. I don't really, I'm not going to work hard on those things. And we're like, why? He's like, well, I'm going to be a YouTuber. Oh my God. And so, so if you ask why does the parent want to show the kid the yeah. dead rats, yeah. I totally need to show Jax the dead rats <laughs> That's fair. multiple times. That's and fair. it's not, and again, still be supportive. Look, yeah. I'm all I've we have worked on YouTube videos for him. We have a channel name for him. We've mm. recorded a bunch. We've set up cameras. We've talked about how to do it. I'm helped helping him do it. But, but I really don't <laughs> want that to be his career. <laughs> well, and, oh, my God. And you think about I me mean, like but you think about like what you were saying, like you were like, you know, when you tell your son like uh, or your daughter, hey, acting, if you want to do it, great. Most people I know don't make it. It's really hard. 
Yeah. Now imagine telling your rat son who <laughs> wants to go be a gourmet chef. You're like, you know how many rats I know who have been a gourmet chef? Zero, because well, they're dead. <laughs> well, he doesn't even know what a gourmet chef is. I mean, right. like he, he has no experience in that area at all. Um, all right, this has been a very long but yes. truly excellent digression as far as I'm concerned, because this is like the heart of what this movie is about. Right. And Remy decides to kind of come out as a rat, and he comes out of the sewer, and he's saying hello to people. <laughs> people are crashing all around him. He gets into the kitchen, and he finds Linguini out on the floor and people are coming and he runs up into his hat and starts to move Linguini. Apparently Linguini doesn't even have to be awake for Remy to control him. (laughs) And I love that he gets sunglasses on his eyes. (laughs) It's great because the expressions that you get out of Linguini by having the sunglasses on uh, are just so, he literally looks like the most, I don't give a fuck about any, he's, he's the give no fuck chef for the, for this period (laughs) of time. And it's, hilarious <laughs> and particularly when colette shows up because yeah. she was already sad yeah she already felt betrayed by him and now she's seen as the give no fucks celebrity chef yeah oh i see how it is you give me to teach you a few kitchen tricks to dazzle the boss and then you blow past me i thought you were different i thought you thought i was different and this is also where remy's agenda and Linguini's agenda are no longer lining up perfectly right? because Remy wants to be the chef. He wants to cook. Linguini's wants Colette. And Colette slaps him and he wakes up. I didn't have to help you. If I looked out only for myself, I would have let you drown. But I wanted you to succeed. I liked you. My mistake. And she walks out in a, you know, furious. And he's just like, I can't do this anymore. I, I got to tell her. And he bursts out the door, goes up to her. I love that she drives a motor, rides a motorcycle. And he's trying to explain. You have talent. No, but I don't. I, really, it's not me. And then he says, I would have followed your advice to the ends of the earth because I love you. Your advice. But. But I. Don't do it. I have a secret. He is getting ready to reveal Remy. I just love Colette's sheer horrified, confused expression throughout all of this. As you're like, (laughs) this is one of the moments where you're like, okay, well, we know what Linguini is talking about. But to her, she's like, oh, shit. I dated another crazy one. This is like every, yeah, this is every time you like meet somebody off of Tinder or Grindr or something. And then you meet them in real life and you're like, you sounded great, but fuck another crazy one <laughs> wouldn't it be great how would you feel if, if they actually weren't crazy they were just being controlled by a rat <laughs> that would explain a lot by the way there's been a couple situations where i think that being controlled by a rat would have been preferable i'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie <laughs> um and he is passionate and he's leaning in towards her and he says you inspire me i'm going to risk it all I'm going to risk looking like the biggest idiot psycho you've ever seen. And I love that she slowly reaches back to her purse to pull out what I believe is is the mace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is a pretty dark thing in a Pixar movie that's handled just perfectly. (laughs) Um, It's the the Tinder date gone wrong. It's It's all there. And just as he's about to spill the beans, 
Remy grabs his hair and he kisses Colette. Yeah. Uh, which she likes. Yeah. Well, eventually. Eventually. Initially, she's like, Ugh. and then eventually, yeah, she gives into it. Let's go see Anton Ego. The oh. design, even the design of his typewriter is great because it looks like a skull. Uh, the design of his room from the overhead shot is a coffin. I mean, they yeah, went all true. out. Like it is a, every bit of the Anton Ego is, <laughs> it's all in one direction. It is super clear and it all is amazing. What is it, Amblister? Gusto's. Finally closing, is it? No. More financial trouble? No, it's... it's Announced a new line of microwave egg rolls. What? What? Spit it out. It's come back. It's popular. The way they frame what a critic is is so interesting and great in this movie because even though it's not the, the central part of the film, this is also a film about criticism to some degree. Mm. You know, and he sees his role as to destroy the bad. That's how, what Anton Ego thinks. And he thought he had buried Gusto, basically. That is 100% true, but also sort of yeah. this weird arrogance that he has in this scene that Gusto's can't be back unless he says it's back, that he has right. that right. power and control. Um, one of the things I've heard a lot of discussion on now is that the powers of the power of critics has gone way down mm. in terms of what it used to be. What it used to be was when Janet Maslin wrote the review in the New York times of the movie, that meant millions of dollars in box office, mm. you know, and that's not as much the case. And because people look at rotten tomatoes or they look at Yelp for restaurant mm -hmm. reviews. And that is um, an entirely different method of getting information about movies yeah. and food and art. What's well, been saturated. Although, yeah. although, it has been replaced by something that is just as challenging and is just as much of a struggle, which is mm -hmm. it used to be if you were the important critic, if you were Siskel and Ebert, if you were Owen right. Lieberman, if you were whoever, then what you said, to, oh, if, if the movie got an A plus in Entertainment Weekly, whatever. Now, because right. of social media and Twitter, we have this mass fandom reaction to things, which is just this unwieldy beast, which is, mm. oh, well, if – if half of your Star Wars audience thinks that Last Jedi is the worst movie ever made and everyone is tweeting about it en masse, which is no longer a singular character like Anton Ego, but it is mm -hmm. the mass geek audience having the same sort of power that really does freak the studios the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> I in that I would rather have Anton Ego's most of the time than have the Twitterverse. In my opinion, <laughs> although anti-ego is a pretty destructive person. So, um, yeah, as I'm saying, those critics could be pretty destructive um, and definitely bore, uh, carry grudges for decades. Yes. So yes. Yeah. I think you're six of one, half a dozen of the other. Either way, because it's subjective criticism, the power, whoever you give the power to in mass has the power to um, influence and uh, destroy someone's career mm -hmm. casually. You know, what, what, You want to know how I use this stuff? Is I, I saw a study years ago and it said that, you know, the you go to the county fair and there's the big jar of jelly beans. And you have to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar. Oh, yeah. Basically, all humans are terrible at this. When none of us are any good. It's a total <laughs> guess. We're just we're just all awful. Yeah. But the more people guess, if you take an average of their guess, the closer you get to the actual number. Mm. So if you have 50,000 people guess how many jelly beans are in that jar, none of them will be any good. But the mm -hmm. average of them will be damn close to how many jelly beans are in the jar. Mm -hmm. 
when I look at I love Yelp, not because I read the reviews, but because if there's 5,000 people that said this is a good restaurant, it's probably a good restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's just like the numbers and the average game, not mm-hmm. the individual opinions. That's my that's my approach to some of that. Interesting. No, 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 no. The DNA matches. The timing works. Everything checks out. He is Gusto's son. Skinner, though, is as much obsessed with the rat as he is with Linguini. Oh, I see the theatricality of it. A rat appears on the boy's first night. I order him to kill it. And now he wants me to see it everywhere. Ooh, ooh, it's here. No, it isn't. It's here. Am I seeing things? Am I crazy? Is there a phantom rat or is there not? I love the lawyer just kind of watching him go through this insanity. Yeah. He goes, should I be concerned about this? <laughs> um, another interesting moment, and maybe you guys can explain I'm not 100% sure what happens here is they're cooking mm-hmm. and Colette offers uh, Linguini a different ingredient and says it's better. And Remy is resisting it. And then Linguini basically through sheer force grabs the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is the thing better? Like who's right here? That's what I'm tra- I'm like, what mm. is the, what is this trying to say? Well, in this I think, I think what it's trying to say, I mean, I would assume Remy's right. I mean, I'm going to mm-hmm. I'm going to if I'm going to vote on any of these three knowing what's better for the recipe, it's going to be Remy. But that's not what's <laughs> important. I think what's important here is so far in this movie, our two main characters wants have been aligned. Luigi mm-hmm. uh, Linguini mm. wanted a job. Remy wanted to cook. But right. Linguini's want is not to be a chef. Linguini now wants Colette. Remy yeah. still wants to cook. So Linguini is choosing Colette's ingredient because that coincides with what his want as a character is. Right. I want to listen to my girlfriend. I think I want her to think that I'm listening to her. And yeah. Remy is still focused on the food. And so what you have here is this moment where the two characters' wants are diverging. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's Remy doing what's best for the dish, regardless of anyone's feelings of the situation or personal feelings of the situation. It's what's best for the dish in his mind, right. you know? I think you guys are totally right. I think that's what's in the movie. Let me tell you the thought. And maybe it's because I love cooking and I love food. This is the thought that I have. Is that sometimes there's one olive oil and there's another olive oil with a very different flavor profile that would be better for a specific dish. But I've never tasted that olive oil Mm. or a different kind of fish fish sauce or a different kind of, you know, a different ingredient or a different brand of it. And that the only way to learn all this is there's no way that Remy could have tasted every single bottle of everything i think so so in my mind i'm like oh maybe this thing is better Mm. and remy just doesn't know what it is and is being stubborn i think that was sort of Mm. the reaction i had i totally think you guys are probably right well and i think the actual answer is it doesn't matter i I think the truth is that i don't think remy is infallible and it is absolutely a possibility that in this instance colette could be right i think for the purposes of why this scene is in the movie and why brad bird wanted it there that part is immaterial what actually is important is that we now have two characters that what that do not necessarily want the same thing anymore right right um, and we run out and Linguini jumps on the back of Colette's motorcycle, barely holding on to his toque with Remy in it. And they go around a corner and he loses his toque, loses Remy, and they ride off. And Remy is all alone in the middle of the street. He's wet. People scream. He's, it's scary. And he runs down into the sewer. And it is a real low point. I was reminded how fragile it all was. How the world really saw me. He's back at the restaurant and there is Emil and he's brought friends to the restaurant <laughs> and they want food. And so 
Remy reluctantly goes inside and finds the walk-in locked. He goes into Gusto's office looking for the key and gets into a conversation with Gusto about stealing food. They want you to steal food? Yes. No, it's no, it's complicated. It's it's family. And I love this moment because he's been talking to the Gusto image from the Anyone Can Cookbook, but now all of the Gusto life-size figures from <laughs> the ethnic cuisine start talking to him with different accents. It's hilarious. They don't have your ideals. Ideals? If Chef Fancy Pants had any ideals, you think I'd be hocking barbecue over here? Or microwave burritos? Yeah, or tooth, I say, toothpicking chicken? About as French as a corn dog. And I love, by the way, we hear that in addition to the burritos, to the Chinese food, to the to the uh, corn dogs, <laughs> we also have a Scottish version that has prepackaged haggis. Oh, gross. Yikes. That is a food I've never had. I, never I tried it once. once. In, I, I was in Scotland with our friend Josh Moon, and I tried it, and it was not to my liking. There's a um, place down here in San Diego that's a British pub, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit closer to downtown, and they they have a shop. And one of the things they sell is canned haggis. And I'm like, who the mm-hmm. fuck would buy canned haggis? Canned haggis. I don't get it. I mean, it, you know, it is one of the there are a lot of foods where it's like we needed to use every bit of the animal and we figured out a good way to do it. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> and that is what it's like. Head cheese is another one that's like mm. spam Ugh. is that for me? I can't. I like spam. <laughs> Pass. No, thanks. No, thanks. Spam, spam masubi. Spam, 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 spam. <laughs> linguini. Why would linguini be filed with your will? And he reads the purple letter and says, He's your son? I have a son? I have a son? (laughs) (laughs) How could you not know this? Now, technically, I don't think Gusteau knew he had a son, did he? I don't think he did. No. I don't think he did. She said they weren't even sure, but it might be. Yeah. So the how could you not know this doesn't actually make a whole bunch of sense, but it sets up a fantastic joke, which is, I am a figment of your imagination. You did not know how could I? Which is also true. (laughs) And then just as we're figuring out that Linguini, in fact, is the heir to the restaurant, in comes Skinner, sees the rat. Remy grabs the will and the letter and runs out, chased by Skinner, who runs into the saucier, who's on a scooter. He grabs the scooter. Now we go into a really, really good action sequence. And I think for Skinner, it's so funny. He's so upset that the rat has the letter that's going to destroy his life, but he also is really, really happy that he's not crazy. <laughs> like, there's a, I was right, but also, yeah. holy shit. <laughs> I have a question. What is the least action-y Pixar movie? It it might be this one. Because really, there's the, the chase from the lady with the gun at the beginning, and there's this sequence. Those are the only kind of action-y things in it. Um, whereas most of the, like I think of Wally, like the whole last third of the movie is an action sequence, mm. you know? Yeah. I'm trying to think through all of the movies and I think you might be, this is definitely mm. on the lower end of it for sure. I, I'm trying to think if there's anything that has less action or like kind of like big set piece business stuff. But yeah, I think this is probably one of the smaller, I mean, I would count like when Remy first gets to the kitchen and he's kind yeah. of yeah. being run yeah. around everywhere. I mean, that's an action yeah. sequence. It's just a rat sized action sequence, yeah. but, yeah. uh, but I think that, yeah, I think you're right. Which, again, shows that animation can do just so much more stuff than we give it credit for. You know, mm-hmm. this is a story about a chef. Yeah. But this action sequence is great. We're running, you know, through the city, jump off into the Seine, onto the boat, running through the boat. And, like, he loses the letter and then jumps on the letter and is floating the letter. And Skinner almost <laughs> grabs it and he misses it. Remy manages to jump from one boat to another boat. And Skinner does not make it and ends up all wet. And Remy has gotten away. 
And Skinner shows up at his restaurant, still looking wet. And man, things move pretty fast because he sees Linguini in his office and says, you get out of my office. Get out of my office. He's not in your office. You are in his. Linguini has the restaurant and we have music and there's a newspaper article that says what's happened. And Skinner sees the newspaper article and is angry in a cafe. And Linguini brings Remy to his new beautiful home that he's apparently bought. And this totally feels like the end of a movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was going to say, Steve, I remember, I do actually remember when you and me and John saw this movie originally in the theater and we came yeah. out and we were talking about it and we talked about this moment because it is such a, like structurally, it totally works and makes sense because mm-hmm. it's not the end of Remy's story. Like Remy didn't get what he wanted, but it feels like the end of a movie. It feels like, okay, there's the big reveal. Linguini gets everything. He's got the girl. He's got the restaurant. This is the end. And it takes you a minute to kind of go, oh, wait, like there's still more that has to happen here. <laughs> we well, you know is you said something in our first part that I thought was really interesting, which is you said how smoothly we went from our point of view character, which was Remy, into the world of Linguini and his story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Skinner is Linguini's bad guy. Right. And the mm. thing that we're preventing is that Linguini, it coming out that Linguini is Gusto's son and him getting the restaurant and Skinner, who's our bad guy, losing. Yeah. That, we just had the end of that movie. Yeah. Right. But now we've gone back to Remy, who's our main point of view character, and we've introduced new conflicts with Linguini as well that we're also going to have to resolve. And I love the moment, by the way, that Skinner is spying and Horst holds up his thumb and we see Skinner go flying. We don't know what he did with that thumb, but it seems powerful. It's a powerful thing. And we were building another tension, which is that Remy is feeding more and more rats. Your ride has been meteoric, yet you have no formal training. What is the secret to your genius? Secret? Y- you, you want the truth? I... M. Uh, Gusto's son. Really a person that probably should never do a press conference. Right. Ever. Ever, uh, ever, ever. Yeah. Where do you get your inspiration? Uh, inspiration has many names. Mine is named Colette. Which is a nice thing mm. to say. Well, ex- unless, unless you're Remy. <laughs> what? Yeah, right. Well, and this is the split, is that Linguini's goal is Colette. That's right. what he cares about. Yeah. Remy's goal is to cook great food. And I think that when their interests were aligned, when Linguini needed Remy for the job and Remy needed Linguini to be in a human kitchen, it was great. And now yeah. that Linguini has gotten all of these accolades and is like held up as this famous person and wants to sort of hold on to that feeling and hold on to Colette and hold on to everything. Um, and it's also why you see Remy now feeding the other rats more is because mm. he Remy was feeling like he belonged in the human world. And now he, as, from the moment that he kind of flies off the back of the scooter till now, he's feeling less and less. So he's falling back more on the rat world. Like mm. he is, right. he is a person who's in these two worlds. And now the world that he's been in for most of this movie is kind of, it doesn't fit him anymore. And that's a frustration and why we have this conflict. Mm. You know what else is going on that just occurred to me is that he's not getting any credit. Right. Linguini's getting all the credit. When he let, lets the rats in to eat some food, he is getting credit for that. They mm-hmm. are thanking him for that. Yeah. But the actual work he's doing, Linguini's getting all the credit. Pardon me for interrupting your premature celebration, but I thought it only fair to give you a sporting chance as you are new to this game. Uh, game? Yes. And you've been playing without an opponent. 
which is, as you may have guessed, against the rules. John, you are a critic. Ha! Do you think of yourself as the opponent of people that you no. look at? Of course not, because that's hubris. That's ego. And I hate critics who feel that way. And it's Anton ego. There are, yeah, fair point. There are a number of them who feel that way in the sphere. And I've run across them. I've spoken with them. It's a weird experience uh, where the critic thinks they know as much as the artist and are willing to call them out in certain ways and even have the ego, again, to say, like, well, you've got to impress me. You know, and so I don't know, because ego is what uh, really helps a lot of people accomplish what they accomplish in this world. Uh, And whether it's good or bad, it is a predominant part in the creative world of a number of people who are successful, for sure. John, you and I have talked a lot about the cheap seats uh, on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how's the view from there is that having having tried to make some films, Mm. the idea of just feeling like your job is to rip up someone who worked really hard to make a thing. It just feels really yucky. Yeah. But then again, if you don't, if you create a film and you don't give your full commitment to the film, that'll read in the film. And it is, it is, you've willfully put that out there to be destroyed. And I think that's the other side of it as well. If you don't put enough effort into the creation of the film and it comes out looking like crap and you put it out there, then, you know, all bets are off at that point, in my opinion. And you can get skewered because you didn't give it everything you got. And so it's different than getting a term paper from your teacher. The teacher gives you a C plus because he knows he didn't, you didn't really commit to doing the, the work. It's, it's no different. Well, I also think, though, that Brad Bird uh, and the whole team created Anton Ego to be a very specific type of critic, kind of what you guys are yes. saying, which is Correct. which is that and, – and we talk about this a lot on Geek Buddies because on Geek Buddies, we try mm-hmm. and be really positive. And we know that even if we don't like a specific – like I don't like most of Zack Snyder's movies, a huge chunk of our audience loves Zack Snyder movies. Yeah. Uh, and right. so I'll come in and talk about why – I don't like that movie or why it didn't work for me, but mm-hmm. I'm never going to say that Zack Snyder isn't a super passionate, super talented director who puts mm-hmm. his all into his movies because he is. And I think that there is a way to critique while still being um, respectful of the artist's work. Anton Ego is very specifically a critic who mm-hmm. not only is not respectful unless he deems you a good creator, but also someone who takes glee in ripping somebody apart. And I think that is, right. and there, and as, as John said, there are those types of critics out there. And I think this is very specifically a very pointed uh, mm. discussion and criticism about a very specific kind of critic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys know about Jonathan Gold? Uh, um, I don't think so. So Jonathan Gold is a food critic okay. uh, who sadly passed away about four years ago. And he is probably one of the, he, he's probably the most important food critic of the last 20 years. Mm. And he was in LA and he wrote for the LA weekly. And then he wrote for the LA times. And what he did, first of all, he basically never wrote bad reviews <laughs> is that. And what he felt his job was, was nor it was that the food critic would go and review the new high end restaurant for the great chef that the rich people would go to. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Gold would do that, but that's not really what he was really into. What he was really into was finding the mom and pop place in the strip mall that had been making the same great Thai food for 20 years mm-hmm. and talking about why it's so great. And he became the person that really, A, if Jonathan Gold wrote a review on your restaurant, suddenly you go from five people coming in today for, to 500 people coming in. Mm. But also, is he elevated all of this uh, – cooking from different countries, from different regions that wasn't necessarily high end. And the, what you see in the food scene today, you see all these places that are 
kind of fine dining, but less expensive or exploring one kind of Peruvian food or one region in Mexico and all this yeah. stuff. A lot of that is because of Jonathan Gold and how he approached criticism <laughs> is that he really wanted to highlight people that were doing great stuff and definitely not be snobby about it. And mm. I, I just loved him. You mean like almost like he thought that a great cook could come from anywhere? That's exactly. (laughs) And I really, that's what I find so interesting is I really wonder if people were talking about Jonathan Gold when they made this film. Probably not because it's a little earlier than he was becoming really famous. Mm. Um, By the way, there's even a documentary about him called It's Something About Gold. Uh, it's, it's, it, he, he's a really, really interesting figure. John, when we first started the cinephiles, I was yep. desperate to get him on the show. Oh yeah. And I, I, I had written to him and it, literally I wrote and got a message back of like, he probably would really like to do it, but there's stuff going on with him right now. Mm. And so it's not going to happen. Cause he's, he was a KCRW where I knew some people. Right. Right. And, uh, and then a month later I found out he had died. Wow. You know, oh. cause he was dying of pancreatic cancer, um, at the time. Uh, yeah, he was, he's was just a great. It's just an amazing person. Mm-hmm. But that is not how Anton Ego approaches things. <laughs> and now Linguini and Remy have an argument. And that's another thing. Your opinion isn't the only one that matters here. Colette knows how to cook too, you know. Bow! Which makes me, again, reinforces I think you guys are right about him rejecting Colette's idea and that being part of what that moment is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this moment, Skinner is looking through from the roof just like uh, Remy did, and finally now he officially sees. What is the cook? You cool off and get your mind right, little chef. Ego is coming, and I need to focus. And Remy is angry. He sees a meal. And we got a lot more rats who want to come get food. I'm sorry, Remy. I know there are too many guys. I you know what? Limit. It's okay. I've been selfish. You guys hungry? What, are you kidding? All right. Dinner's on me. We'll go after closing time. In fact, tell Dad to bring the whole clan. And now we have a whole bunch of rats eating in the kitchen. And in comes Linguini. And the rats scatter and hide. And he comes to apologize to his little chef. Mm-hmm. Um, I love all the hiding positions for all the rats. <laughs> hiding is great. Like on the black squares and uh, like fitting into all these little places. Um, and the other interesting thing, as Linguini is apologizing and saying some really nice things to Remy, dad is listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, and that's just tying up one little piece of our story that we had to deal with. But it um, is, I mean, and it is really great. I mean, because you have this whole Linguini blowing up at Remy moment. That causes mm-hmm. Remy to do so like and Remy feels very betrayed by this because he's gotten Linguini right. to where he is. And then you turn around the very next moment and it's fine. Linguini's a nice guy. He has a change of heart. He comes in. He says all this really nice stuff. But it's too late because now Remy has done the betrayal to Linguini. So like they've both right. our two characters have betrayed each other. And then to your point, additionally, you have dad sitting there seeing something that he has never seen in his life before. You know, right, I, it's the, right. it's the, to your point, to use the acting analogy for a parent, it's the moment that you see your kid and you're like, right. Fuck. Mm. They are really, really good. <laughs> I, I've never disappointed anyone before because nobody's ever expected anything of me. And the only reason anyone expects anything from me now is 
because of you. And as this is happening, as this wonderful coming together moment is happening, Emil is reaching for grapes. <laughs> and you just know, like, oh, this has to break. You know, like, this is, we obviously, this is not going to end well. And I love the shot when they, he reaches for grapes and we cut away, hear more of the story. And then we cut back to Emil, literally stuffed with grapes. <laughs> and he falls. He spits out the grapes and all hell breaks loose. And now Linguini says, You're stealing food? What? How could you? I, I thought you were my friend. I trusted you. Get out, you and all your rat buddies. And don't come back or I'll treat you the way restaurants are supposed to treat pests. And this is the low point. I mean, this is both mm-hmm. of them, our, our best friends in our buddy movie. They came together, they accomplished all this stuff, and now they're broken apart. And, I mean, for, for Remy to say, You're right, Dad. Who am I kidding? We are what we are. And we're rats. Which to him means I can't have any of the things that I want in my life. And it also is like, you know what? Uh, There's the moment I know, it's a weird comparison, but in Lawrence of Arabia, where after he's been, you know, whipped and is at his low point and he is telling General Allenby, I just want to be ordinary. Yeah. Why can't I just be ordinary? Mm -hmm. Because being extraordinary as Allenby calls Lawrence, is hard. Yeah. It's easier to just be a rat and eat some garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Colette wants Linguini to make a speech. Tonight is a big night. Appetite is coming, and he's going to have a big ego. Everyone is bored by his speech. It has done the opposite of inspire anybody. I'm hungry, and I don't need the inside food to be happy. And Remy goes, no, it's a trap, and runs and pushes Emil out of the trap, getting trapped himself in a cage. And who has trapped him but Skinner? So, I have in mind a simple arrangement. You will create for me a new line of Chef Skinner frozen foods, and I, in return, will not kill you. By the way, I bet Remy would make some great frozen foods. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably. listen, as far as plans go, Skinner's plan is not, it's evil, but it would be successful. After reading a lot of overheated puffery about your new cook, you know what I'm craving. A little perspective. That's it. I'd like some fresh, clear, well-seasoned perspective. Can you suggest a good wine to go with that? Making the joke that someone else can't understand or respond to is always just an irritating thing. <laughs> uh, this is the yeah. thing my father, my father-in-law would do this to waiters all the time. Really? He, he would make jokes and they wouldn't know that he was joking and they would be confused and it would be awkward. And he thought that was funny. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not fun times. <laughs> I really dislike people who mistreat waiters. Yeah. Ditto. I, I'm afraid I am. Um, um... Your dinner selection? Tell your chef, Linguini, that I want whatever he dares to serve me. Tell him to hit me with his best shot. And the other person in the dining room, disguised, is Skinner. So, we have given up. Why do you say that? We are in a cage, inside the car trunk, awaiting a future in frozen food products. No, I'm the one in a cage. I've given up. You are free. And I love Gusto's response. I am only as free as you imagine me to be. As you are. Of course, 
honestly, Remy could imagine himself as free as he wants and without his dad and Emil to drop a gargoyle on the back of the car. He's not going anywhere. Right, right. Fair, but in real life, uh, our trap is not being trapped in the back of a car. Our trap is usually ourselves and our own limits. Yep. So, yep. I mean, I probably there's been a couple of people who listen to this who have been trapped in a car. So for you guys, you've been trapped in a car. <laughs> but for most of us, uh, you know. Not trapped in a car. Where are you going? Back to the restaurant. They'll fail without me. Why do you care? Because I'm a car. It's great. Oh, mm. it's great. There's chaos in the kitchen because they're asking Linguini what to make and he doesn't know what to tell them. I, just, I think it's important to note also that like to the point of the whole like Linguini got the wrap up, he got the girl, he got everything. He has now yeah. passed his success story and is now in uncomfortable territory because he's being expected to be Remy and he can't right. be like this is like he is no longer happy. He's not like, oh, my right. life is great. His life is horrible right now because this yeah. is not his story. He, you know, this is, and this is what makes it so great when Remy does come in. I think that's a great point because the the point of the story is not, hey, be a great chef. The point is be who you're supposed to be. Right. Remy is supposed to be a great chef. Right. Linguini is now pretending to be a great chef, which is terrible. And just as things are becoming worse and worse, in comes Remy and Horst looks around and sees him and yells, Brad, (laughs) and they all grab their knives and they are charging at him in a really scary moment until Linguini drops in front of them. I know this sounds insane, but, well, the truth sounds insane sometimes, but that doesn't mean it's not. The, the, The truth, and the truth is, I have no talent at all, but this rat... He's the one behind these recipes. He's the cook, the real cook. And he makes this whole speech <laughs> really mm. sincere, really impassioned. And of course, what we expect in this moment is them all go, yeah. <laughs> and Horse walks up, hands him his apron and walks out, followed by everybody else, including Colette. Yeah. Who pauses for a moment and then she walks out too. Well, she goes to slap him. Oh, you're right. You're this right. This is yeah. a really interesting moment that we're watching at this time around. Like she goes and she stops herself. And I was like, damn, what kind of relationship is this? But yeah, and then walks out. Yeah. I know. Again, I think this is why Pixar does it great. I think in most other mm. movies, that speech and the truth of it would make everyone go, all right, we're cooking with the rat. Yeah. And like the reality is, no, who's going to believe? No, no one's going to believe this. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> and so, of course, they all quit. And I think yeah. it's actually a great choice. Um, and, you know, for Colette, yes, we're going to get to her moment in a minute. But, like, I think it's it's good that they don't pretend that everybody in the world would automatically be on board with this plan. Right. And Colette is riding her motorcycle, almost gets in an accident. Yeah. And then she stops and looks in a window. And there in the window, prominently displayed, is the book Anyone Can Cook. Mm. And the light turns green, and she doesn't go. And it's kind of to what you were saying when we discussed the part one, which is she's a true believer of the Gusto theory. Like, she's the one who, at the beginning of the movie, said that about Linguini. Like, anyone can cook. And we are Gusto. We're at Gusto's. This is what it is. And here she is faced with the most ultimate example of that. And this is where her faith is tested. It's like, look, mm-hmm. if you really believe this, if you really believe what you've been saying for the whole movie, then you do have to go back. Yeah. Yeah. What I love to, you always have the choice of, do I actually show her turn around or not? And I mm-hmm. love the choice of, 
You don't. You leave it. We all know that she's going to turn around because we're watching a movie, but you leave it at that moment where it's undecided. Yeah. Is strong. yeah. Dad, I, I don't know what to say. I was wrong about your friend and about you. I, I don't want you to think I'm choosing this over family. I can't choose between two halves of myself. I'm not talking about cooking. I'm talking about guts. This really means that much to you? And he nods. And Dad whistles. And in come the rats. <laughs> this whole thing is completely ridiculous and totally awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, and the other thing that happens right as the rats come in to help is in comes the health inspector. Mm-hmm. And Remy immediately goes, you want to help? Stop that health inspector. <laughs> the rats charge after him. He gets into a very, very tiny little car. And, and the rats basically capture the health inspector in what can only <laughs> seem like a horror movie for him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is terrifying. And then Remy is given directions. And he sends the rats through the dishwasher so they're clean. And he divides them up into jobs. And even though this is completely ridiculous and silly, not that the movie wasn't to begin with, mm. uh, he's ordering them what to do to make this meal. And it's, and it's great because now that, like, it's exactly what he says to his dad. Like, for the entire movie, he's felt he had to choose one or the other. He's got this family. He's got this dream. And he's felt like it's a, I, I get one or I get the other. I don't get both. Mm-hmm. And because of the way this all went and because his dad finally accepts who he is, he now gets to be both things. He gets both sides right. of his life get totally. to come together. And that's mm-hmm. why, even though it's super ridiculous and it's silly and it's kind of gross, uh, it's, gross. Still, it's, it's still totally satisfying for the audience because you're like, mm-hmm. this is this is what everybody wants. You want yeah. you yeah. want your family to be proud of you. You want to follow your dreams. You want to have it all. And Remy in this moment gets to have it all. Yeah. Well, and even Linguini, who's relieved of having to fulfill the fake role of being who he is not, yeah. goes, oh, you're going to need a waiter. And he puts on roller skates. Yes. Because he's going to be the, and he's, this is Linguini being Linguini now. And he goes out into the dining room with menus. He serves drinks. He pours wine. He's really, really good at being this roller skating waiter. <laughs> and then Colette enters, sees all the rats, almost pukes. You came back, <laughs> Colette. I. Don't- Say a word. If I think about it, I might change my mind. Just tell me what the rat wants to cook. And Remy holds up the card for Ratatouille. <gasps> it's like the title was there just waiting for us. <laughs> just waiting. Ratatouille? It's a peasant dish. Are you sure you want to serve this to Eagle? And then we see the rats throw the uh, health inspector into the walk-in. <laughs> and she is starting to work on Ratatouille. And he stops her. She's like, well, I'm doing what you said. <laughs> Well, how would you prepare it? And then we watch Remy lovingly prepare this dish. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this is, I don't know, you know, if you look at, this is straight out of the French Laundry. This is, and if yep. you look at the actual dish, ratatouille, by the way, I've had it. I don't really like it at all. It's mm-hmm. a bunch, it's a squash stew. Um, but <laughs> this looks absolutely gorgeous. Out in the, the restaurant, Ego takes his first bite of soup and there's a reaction. Mm. And then... The ratatouille comes out. It looks absolutely beautiful. Linguini brings it out to Ego. Ego pops out his pen, ready to just destroy Linguini and this dish, puts a fork in to take a bite. This moment, it is one of the two or three greatest moments in all of Pixar films for me. It is. You know, this, the montage and up, 
holding hands in Toy Story 3. Hmm. Like, they're just perfect, perfect bing bong. <laughs> These are like perfect filmic moments. Oh, yeah. And he brings the fork with the ratatouille to his lips. It touches his mouth. We cut to his eyes, which fly open. And then the camera zollies back. And a zolly is, you know, we talked about this is the vertigo effect. This is in Jaws. This is where physically, if you were doing it, you have a camera on a dolly and you either dolly back while on a zoom lens, you zoom forward or you dolly in while on the zoom lens, you zoom back. And it creates this totally bizarre distortion. Well, there are no dollies here. There are no cameras. There are no lenses. So they created it. That's what I just love about it is they created a physical lens effect yeah. entirely in the computer. And it just throws you back. And what you as you fly back, you fly out of the eyes of young Anton Ego mm -hmm. standing at the door. Behind him is the broken bike because he obviously had an accident <laughs> or maybe kids beat up his bike or it got hit by a car. We don't know, but something happened and Ego is sad. And there's his mom inside, and she sits him down and puts in front of him a bowl of ratatouille. And he puts that in his mouth. And then we fly through his eyes right back to the restaurant, right back to Anton Ego, who drops the pen that hits the floor with a resounding echo. And it's just perfect storytelling. It's all right there. Well, and it's, it's exactly what the medium should be, which is it's perfect storytelling with now, without a single piece of dialogue. Yep. You don't need you don't need any dialogue. You don't need him to say, Mom, I fell off my bike. You don't need her to say, Oh, I made you something special. Like you don't need any words. It's all visual and it is you instantly understand it at a visceral level and you get it. And it makes his reaction that much more powerful. Oh yeah. Well, and I think Anton Ego forgot this moment mm -hmm. of his life. Mm -hmm. This is the moment where he fell in love with food. Mm -hmm. But he's gone through – food has become such a dark thing for him. It's, oh, my job is as the gatekeeper. My job is to be the competition. He forgot this emotional, deep childhood emotional connection to food, and now he remembers it. Mm. Yep. Can I, t can I tell you about my Ratatouille moment? So uh, as I, I mentioned on the podcast before, David Chang is this great chef who Mama Fuku, who I love his podcast. He does Ugly Delicious, which was on Netflix, which was great. Mm -hmm. uh, he one of the things they did was his company opened up uh, a place called uh, Milk Bar, which was like a little dessert stand in New York. Mm -hmm. There's actually one in Silver Lake now. Um, anyway, one of the things they'd serve that I had heard about is cereal milk ice cream. And it's just literally soft serve. It's white soft serve out of the thing in a little styrofoam cup. I get it with my plastic spoon. I walk out of Milk Bar onto the sidewalk in New York City. I put the bite to my mouth and I swear to God, it was a full Anton Ego. I went back <laughs> to Saturday morning cartoons and Little League and, you know, school and Halloween costumes and all of like being nine years old. And it tasted like. Cereal milk. I mean, it just tasted like, you know, the frost, what was left over from the frosted flakes. And it, but it was just this perfect, completely emotional moment. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and this is the thing. This is why I love food. It's like food connects with me emotionally as much as film connects with me emotionally. And I love that the idea, it's different things for different people, that art actually can do that for us. You know? Yeah. yeah. It could take us to a place viscerally that maybe we didn't even remember. Mm -hmm. And and that's what happens to Anton Ego. Well, I think that's why the film works that moment because it's universal. I think we've all had that bite or seen that movie or listened to that song or heard someone say a line from something or been in a play or a ballet or a, 
a rock concert or a concert of any music. And then that one thing happens and all of a sudden you're all the way back. And I remember that. And it's, it's, I remember being in the theater when this moment happened. It's one of the most memorable moments I've ever had in a theater because I immediately related to this character so powerfully and, and everyone else did as well, you know? And I think that's one of the gifts of Pixar movies when they nail these moments in their great films it's that it appeals to everyone universally. It doesn't even have to be about food. It's that one thing that touches your inner child and, and makes you remember what it was like to have a little bit of hope in your life. And that's what he ego's face completely changes. Yep. And he gleefully it, eats this. Even Skinner, who is like, what? Takes a bite and he, he, against his own face, he, he acquiesces for just a second. That he enjoys the taste of the food and that he that it is that it does taste really well. And so it's just like yes yeah. or really good rather. Yeah. Well, and it's great. The Skinner, the, the Skinner's great is because you get the you get the beautiful, perfect, one of the top five moments and maybe all of animation yep. moments with Anton Ego. And then you follow it up by Skinner, who is our Looney Tune character of this <laughs> yeah. movie. And Basically. you get the you get the ridiculously comedic physical comedy of seeing his version of that reaction, which is somebody who is so determined to hate what he's eating, but can't deny how good it is. And watching that struggle on his face is just classic comedy. It's great. The the grabbing of the table cloth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's so, you know, obviously this is a a movie about an artist, you know, following their passion and and embracing their dreams and becoming Mm. who they're supposed to become. But there's a side lesson of like, how do we approach the world that we're in, Mm -hmm. you know, and do we approach it ready to critique? Yeah. Ready to find fault. You know, this is the thing that Stephen Jones and I have talked about of the cult of negativity. It's Mm. really easier and faster and easy to connect with someone to bitch about something. Sure. And it's much harder and you're much more vulnerable to say what you love and to because you're opening up your heart to a lot of pain and disappointment when you Mm. approach it that way. I can't remember the last time I asked the waiter to give my compliments to the chef. And now I find myself in the extraordinary position of having my waiter be the chef. Thanks, but I'm just your waiter tonight. Then who do I thank for the meal? And he goes, excuse me a moment. He rolls into the kitchen. I love watching through the little circular window, him arguing with Colette. (laughs) And then they both come out and he goes like, oh, Colette must be the chef. You must be the chef. If you wish to meet the chef, you will have to wait until all the other customer have gone. So be it. And slowly but surely, everybody disappears. And then they reveal Remy to Anton Ego. At first, Ego thinks it's a joke. But as Linguini explains, Ego's smile disappears. And he sees the rats. And he watches Remy make ratatouille. And when the story is done, Ego stands, thanks us for the meal. meal. And I love that we hear him thanking them for the meal. Yes. And leaves without another word. And now we're back at Ego's house. As he's trying to figure out how to reckon with this thing. And then we hear his review. It is an amazing piece of writing. It really is. Uh, It really is. I mean, to get this review... Right. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like you, you've got to con- convince the audience that this is a review written by the character that you've so perfectly presented to us in the movie. And those of us who are watching the movie have read numerous reviews. So we will poke holes in your writing if you don't make this tone per- or no perfect. 
And damn if they don't. I mean, damn. And Peter O'Toole, of course, is oh, just yeah, course. excellent yeah. delivering the review. Yeah. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. I think, too, that a criticism, like anything else, is, an, is writing. It's an, it, it is its own art form. Mm-hmm. And like any good art form, oh, yeah. right. if you, you need to put, to some degree, yourself in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this review so amazing, is that it's about him. It's a, it is a review about Rem, but he's also, you can hear him struggling with himself yeah. and learning things and changing and facing. It's like he felt his job was to bring the cold, hard reality to the review of the restaurant. And now he is bringing, he's had to turn that critical eye on himself and he's come up wanting and he's reckoning with that and that he has actually found a true, a new truth. And that's what's coming out. It's, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable piece of writing. Yeah, particularly the bitter truth the critics must face. Is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. Favorite line of the entire amazing piece. You just summed well, up Adam Sandler's career. Sorry. I, yeah, sorry. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I guess we're not doing the water boy on the cinephiles anytime soon. Fuck no, soon. we're not doing the water boy on the cinephiles. We can do well, Wedding Singer. Go ahead, yeah. I like Wedding Singer. Well, and I think also there's the truth, and this is the bigger truth about the world and art and everything. Like I, This happens a lot when I talk to people who can't draw that well, and I certainly mm-hmm. can't draw as well as many of the amazing artists that I work with in animation, but I mean, I can draw decently. And I think it's, and I think that drawing is pretty easy. Like it comes easy to me and other people are like, I can't do it. Uh, I'm like, no, anyone can draw. It's really easy. You do whatever. And I love that we've had this entire movie that has been based around this idea that anyone can cook. And that is a lovely sentiment that most of us know is not true because we all know people who can't cook. We know people (laughs) that try and cook and are horrible. Um, We know people that burn Thanksgiving turkeys. Like we all we know all of these things (laughs) that have happened. And so even though we love the sentiment of anyone can cook, we don't really deep down believe it. But Anton Ego gets to the truth of what Gusto was saying, which is at the end of his criticism when he says, In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, Anyone can cook. But I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. What Gusto is saying is that not everyone is equally as good, but everyone can attempt it, and the truly great can be anyone. Like you don't, there's no gatekeeping. You don't have to be a certain level, a certain color, a certain gender, a certain anything. Great cooks can come from anywhere, and that's yeah. true of art. Absolutely, yeah. and I love this idea because, and particularly both in the world of art, of, of film, and in the world of food. We benefit so much when great artists come from somewhere else Mm -hmm. that they bring a different experience. And in food, that means bringing different kinds of cuisine and heritage. You know, like there's like, you know, it's like now there's a 
Filipino food is becoming like one of the really emergent mm. food, just as Korean food was True. a little while ago. And it's because people are bringing their own background to cooking. Yeah. And we see the same thing, obviously, in film, where when someone from a group that doesn't have a lot of movies makes gets to make a movie, then suddenly we get to see all sorts of different flavors in the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. I absolutely love and I think it's a brilliant spin on a line. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, would Gusto go, yes, that's exactly what I mean, or no, I was saying anyone can cook. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing we hear in this is this idea of pushing for new talent. The job of a critic is mm. to is to champion the new thing. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusto's, who is, in this critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. I will be returning to Gusto's soon. Nope. <laughs> he will not. <laughs> Gusto's is getting shut down because we find out at the end that they couldn't hold on to the inspector and Skinner forever. <laughs> they did have to let them go. Once it got out, there were rats in the kitchen. Oh, man. The restaurant was closed and Ego lost his job and his credibility. But don't feel too bad for him. He's doing very well as a small business investor. <laughs> and now we find out that, in fact, Remy has been telling this story to a bunch of rats in like a little tiny rat restaurant. Um, and we look down into this beautiful little bistro and there is Anton Ego eating a meal, looking completely different, an entirely different person with the beret. It's very much a Scrooge moment. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he has, it's suddenly Christmas morning and he is completely transformed. Yeah. Can I interest you in a dessert this evening? Don't you always. Which one would you like? And he sees Remy. And he says, surprise me. <laughs> and the camera pulls back up through the plants to rats eating in their little rat restaurant above. Dad's saying, hey, believe me, that story gets better when I tell. And the camera continues to pull back. And we see that not only do we have this small little bistro that they're cooking in, but that there is a huge, huge line of customers waiting to get in. And we see the sign above the restaurant. What does it say? Ratatouille. Woo-hoo-hoo! <laughs> um, and I do love this ending just because, you know, as we said, like, this isn't just a movie about, well, Remy gets to be a cook. Um, right. He does. But it's a movie about somebody who feels like they have to choose between their family and their dream. And right. at the end of this movie, he gets both. His relationship with his dad and his brother and by definition, the rest of the rat uh, clan is better than it was. He did, he was always the outcast. He didn't fit in. They all looked at him as a little bit different, a little bit less than. And now he's a big hero to them. Like he has a great relationship with them. He's got a great relationship with Linguini and Colette. He's got a great relationship with Anton Ego and he gets to do what he wants. And so mm -hmm. it's one of those things that it's not just that he got the prize at the end. It's not just that he gets to make the food, but it's that he has accepted all the sides of himself and has become a more fully realized being because of it. Mm -hmm. And what I like yep. about it is that he's transformed everyone around him. Mm -hmm. So all of them, Linguini and Colette and Ego and his family, I mean, I don't think that these rats are eating garbage anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. he's actually brought them to his world. He's transformed everyone through his pursuit of his own art. I'm just glad they stopped stealing, Steve. I'm just I'm, Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, by the way, uh, I was looking at some of the things that they were doing in marketing the film, and there was one marketing plan they had that they fortunately abandoned, which they said, hey, we're doing all this fine food stuff. Why don't we do Ratatouille branded wine? Oh and they God. made a deal 
with Costco yeah. to have Ratatouille branded wine and they were working on the packaging and all this stuff. And then someone said, um, you're making a movie for kids. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't sell alcohol with your animated character's picture on it. And they went, oh, yeah, man. <laughs> so they canceled the whole thing. That's weird. Uh, it's really weird. Um, but I'm sure, Mike, you've been in enough board, uh, meetings with executives where there's a lot of weird stuff that comes up sometimes. Oh, man, yeah. You 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 would be shocked about it, it's it, I've been in some weird meetings and I've had some really <laughs> weird requests. And uh, that's an entire podcast of stories that I could tell about. <laughs> Things that I probably shouldn't say, but yeah, when, especially when it comes say. to marketing, especially when it comes yeah. to marketing and yeah. like toys and consumer products and getting the word out on things like there, there are some real doozies of some ideas out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, saying this is a big hit is obvious. It made $620 million at the box office, wow. uh, which is hu- absolutely huge, particularly in 2007. Mm-hmm. It, um, I've always have a weird feeling about the best animated picture Oscar, which of course it won, Mm -hmm. but almost every year it's barely been a contest. There's been one movie that almost always was obviously going to win. And that was usually the Pixar movie. It's just a way I'm, I'm, it's this weird thing where I'm really glad these movies are getting uh, recognized by the Academy Awards. But there's also years where I was like, man, that animated movie should have won best picture. Mm. That was where it really should have been. Yeah. Um, it was nominated for score, sound editing, sound mixing, and original screenplay, and won none of them. By the way, the um, other movies nominated for best animated feature are uh, Persepolis and Surf's Up. Persepolis is great. Surf's Up. I, I do. To, to your point, Steve, I do think that um, the best animated picture category. Although I agree that I ultimately wish animation was just counted as best pictures, I think the animate the best animated picture category has gotten a bit more competitive in the past couple of years. I That's think true. That, That's a really. I think good that point. there was. I think that there was several years where it was just a given that either Pixar or Disney was going to take the Oscar, and I think right. that DreamWorks, Sony, um, some of the smaller studios out there are really giving um, both Disney and Pixar a run for their money in the past mm-hmm. few years. Like uh, you know, like the, so I think there's a lot. There's there's more good animation out there than there's been in a long time, which is great for everybody. It was, I believe, at that time, the record box office for an animated film. Hmm. I think you're right, yeah. No yeah. surprise. Which has certainly been beaten several times since then. Yeah. Um, I will give my final thoughts first. This movie brings together two things that I love. Obviously, I've talked about a lot. I love food. I love restaurants. Obviously, I love movies. It is a story about a, per- a character following their dream. It is really, really funny, and it manages to tell a story that man, if you pitched this to me, I'd go, no way. You know, right. a rat who's a chef controlling another cook through his hair and what? Oh, come on. That's too ridiculous. And yet pick the genius of Pixar is they could take a really, really odd idea and they can make it really entertaining, really fun and make me cry. And when we get to Anton Ego, even it's like a moment, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's 20 seconds long, maybe less. It hits me so hard every time I watch it. Even rereading my notes on that moment hits me hard. Mm. That is the amazing thing about Pixar. And I hope I hope they manage to keep making movies like this for a long, long time. I'll say this. This is a phenomenal film. I love going back to it. I love rediscovering it. We didn't stress enough the use of what Brad Bird does as a director in this movie throughout these two 
episodes and i want to kind of chime in a little bit and just watch the movie as if you're watching a director watch how the camera Mm. moves of course it's animated but watch how that happens watch the angles that he's taking watch the approaches to these scenes that he is taking as a director of this kind of animated piece and 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 let yourself be impressed by that because it is it is phenomenally impressive yes the voiceover work is great the animation is gorgeous paris is beautiful in the eyes of the animators for sure it's very funny it's fun it's got a little bit of a love story rolling through it but yeah and it's inspirational anyone can cook and pixar to steve's uh, point here showed you that anyone can be a hero even a rat yeah in a situation like this and so for that it deserves all kinds of credit and the score is is gore is fantastic as well but it's the direction of brad bird throughout that makes this transcend the genre of animation into what steve just said as well the a best picture nominee which should have been possibly a best picture winner and that speaks volumes and too many times i think people on the oscar side of things don't look at animated films in the same way or don't respect them in the same way when in fact there's just as much if not more work done to create these kinds of films that transcend the genre and show you what animation can do and advance the genre a step forward saying that ratatouille is an is a huge animation achievement both from a visual standpoint from a story standpoint like i mean we've been saying that for the entire two episode run i think for Mm -hmm. me the thing that means the most to me about this movie is that it really it's something that i've really taken to heart as a creator and not only in my own life where i you know as someone who is a writer and a producer and a showrunner like i see myself as like you know wanting to be like remy i think any creative person kind of sees themselves in him but also in the idea um that anyone can cook concept um, you know, when I was working at Hasbro for so many years and working on all the Hasbro IP, you know, you find yourself on days where you're trying to crack a story for Hungry Hungry Hippos or Stretch mm-hmm. Armstrong or any kind of random uh, toy brand. And the idea that uh, not everyone can be a great chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. There's also the idea that not every story is going to be a great story, but a great story can come from anywhere. Mm. And it's something that I really always try to take. Like, you might be working on Hungry Hippos. It doesn't mean, you know, if you can have a movie about a rat that goes to France and becomes a great chef, you can crack a great Hungry Hippos story. You can crack a great Stretch Armstrong story. And it's something that I've really taken to heart in all the projects that I've worked on. It's something I saw in action when you saw how popular My Little Pony became. Like nobody thought that a show about the pastel colored ponies from the 80s would become a huge phenomenon, but it did because of the way Lauren Faust treated the underlying Mm -hmm. material. And so for me, Ratatouille is sort of not only a movie about a great individual artist, but about how to treat all levels of storytelling. Um, and that's something that I've really kind of tried to take with me through all the things that I've worked on, including the stuff that I'm working on right now. That's great. I think those are I think those are all really, really good points. Um, by the way, you know how I said I, that sometimes the animated movie, you know, really maybe it should be the best picture. Mm-hmm. That was not this year. Mm-hmm. The best picture nominees th- that year were No Country for Old Men, Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton and There Will Be Blood. I, I would I, take <laughs> two or three of those out of that list and put Ratatouille in its place. I would take yeah. Juno out of the list. Mm. Maybe atonement, but yeah, not I there would. will be blood, Michael Clayton or no country. Those I would are- take Clayton on a harp. I don't get I, maybe someday we'll debate that on a short. I don't get people's love of that movie. Oh, I like it a lot. I fall asleep every time. <laughs> What's that yeah. movie? Oh, well, anyway, I like, yeah. I, like Ra- I like Ratatouille more than all those movies. <laughs> okay. 
Well said. So that's what we think of Ratatouille. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show at all the places. But please, even if you're not an Apple person, go to that Apple website. Leave us a review. They really, really help. If you want to support the show or pick a film like Brendan Marr did, you can do so at patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can buy or stream ratatouille along with everything we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net and if you want to reach me you could do so at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and you can listen to me talk about star trek endlessly if you're a fan of the original series on enterprise incidents john how would people find you you can always find me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and on twitch the outlaw nation all one word on twitch and head on over to my youtube channel as well youtube.com slash john roca says uh and my other two podcasts the one i do with michael and shannon mcclung the geek buddies and of course the top 10 that i do with matt nost michael not only can we not do animation without you but it's always fun to have these conversations in this world we don't actually get to see each other very much so it's always <laughs> nice to just be able to hang out with my good friends so thank you so much for coming on the show yes well thank you guys for having me i always love being on the show i love talking to you guys about movies not only movies but our shared experience of movies because we've known each other long enough that now some of the, many of these classic films uh that you guys are Viewing, we've all experienced together since the very first time we saw them. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. So I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles for another great film. <laughs> <laughs>